Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week, Chelsea patterson Soblick and Travis Wusso are joining me to talk about the church and COVID vaccine hesitancy with our friend and former ERLC colleague, now pastor in Texas, Philip Bethencourt. The public conversation on COVID vaccine skepticism and hesitancy seems to be narrowing in on conservative Christians, Republican men, and specifically white evangelicals, as polling has illuminated a higher hesitancy among these groups than the national average. We'll talk about some of those polls later on in the show, but it's but it's kind of trending in those groups around like 38, 40% hesitancy, whereas the national average of people who say they're not going to take it hovers down near 20%. So it's almost double. We've talked a lot on this show about how the vaccines will help preserve life and end this pandemic suffering. I'll link back to a few previous episodes uh, with Dr. Russell Moore, president of the ERLC. Uh, We had him on with Chelsea, Travis, and I talking about the medical ethics, to think about these vaccines from a pro-life perspective. Uh, And we also uh, played a conversation that Dr. Moore had with Dr. Francis Collins, who led the United States federal government's efforts on developing these COVID vaccines back last fall. We'll link to both of those in the show notes uh, if you want to learn more. But this week, we are talking to Philip because we want to help you, our audience, continue thinking about how to encourage and engage your community in this conversation as vaccines become available to all of us, more and more people every day. So I'm really excited uh, to jump into this conversation today. Philip Bethencourt is lead pastor of Central Church in College Station, Texas. Before he was called to Pastor Central, he served for seven years as the executive vice president of the ERLC team. He is a graduate of Texas A&M University, class of 2004, and he then went on to earn an MDiv and PhD in systematic theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Philip and his wife, Cammie, have been married since 2005 and have four boys. They love to do all the things that can happen in a house full of boys. You'll often find the Bethancourts out catching balls or watching an Aggie game in their downtime. Philip authored many resources for the ERLC. His books and curriculum include Exalting Jesus in Genesis, Christ-Centered Parenting, and Religious Liberty, How the Gospel Shapes Our First Freedom. Philip also shepherded, led, and and often keynoted our ERLC conferences as he was executive vice president, such as MLK 50 in Memphis in 2018 and the Caring Well Conference in Dallas in 2019. Philip, thanks for joining the Capital Conversations crew. Hey, what a joy to be back with y'all. It's good to see you and be with you. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Yeah, thanks for being with us, Philip. Jeff undersold it a little bit. He referred to you as our colleague. You 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 were the boss. So, yeah, uh, our my, former boss, my, my old my old boss. Philip, it's good to have you back. Get it on. right, Jeff. <laughs> well, you're not my boss anymore. <laughs> Philip, you're wearing a nice maroon there. I was pretty jealous of the uh, Fuego Cup you had. For those who don't know, Philip and I are both Aggies. I mean, how could you not know that at this point if you've been listening to this show? Uh, Fuego is a great taco spot there in College Station, where Philip is pastor of Central Baptist Church. And I would That's just right. like to say I'm married into the Aggieland family, so 
Giggle. That's right. So it's three against Ugh. one here, Travis. Ugh. <laughs> should we should we actually start before we talk about COVID? Uh, Philip, should we should we start by talking about that great baseball game in College Station last week? I think we ought to. I was there in person. It was the first time my four boys got to see the Aggies play the Longhorns in person. A two nothing win where the Longhorn uh, offense looked entirely inept the entire night. It was very <laughs> enjoyable, Jeff. Very enjoyable. Do we do we meet you guys again this year, or is that it? No, that's I it. Don't... That's yeah, for okay. baseball at least. I don't know for other sports. Potentially, we could see each other in the uh, in the playoffs. Man, we've that's got to some, start playing. Sure we've we've, we've got to start playing football against each other. Let's it, go. This, yes, uh, yes we, we do. We we need to put this. Uh, we need to put the drama of um, the Longhorn Network behind us and uh, <laughs> and start. Uh, yeah, there's start some playing on the field again. There's some athletic hesitancy to go along with our conversation about vaccine hesitancy. (laughs) Yeah, we need to overcome that hesitancy, too. That's good. That's good. Well, uh, jumping into the to the topic for today, uh, as the vaccine becomes more available, we're starting to see where there is hesitancy about taking it. Uh, Much of this is understandable and and I would even say to be expected as these vaccines were produced in record time and we're a culture that's able to share information on social media more than ever before. We're just kind of an information overload culture. Uh, But I think many in the medical and academic communities thought coming into this moment that vaccine hesitancy would be particularly high and most notably worth engaging in the African-American community because of the egregious injustices against black Americans and other medical situations in our nation's past, such as the uh, most infamous and and horrific 40-year-long Tuskegee experiment and trials that denied black men in the trial treatment for syphilis so that researchers could just simply track the natural progression of the disease. So just a horrific study and one of, of many others that people thought that because of Tuskegee and other things like that, that reluctance in the African-American community would, would be particularly high. And, and yet we're, we're finding that that's, that's not necessarily true, that reluctance for the COVID vaccine is actually highest in, uh, in white evangelical Americans uh, and uh, Republican men, for example, are, are, are rating the highest at uh, vaccines skeptical or, or, or hesitant. This quote here, I think, is illuminating from a recent story actually published earlier this week by David Crary at the Associated Press. He says, in a March poll by the Associated Press, NORC, Center for Public Affairs Research, 40% of white evangelical Protestants said they likely won't get vaccinated. That's compared to 25% of all other Americans. Uh, And this tracks with other similar polling by others like uh, NPR, PBS, and uh, Marist poll that found the number for white evangelicals at 38% uh, unlikely to to choose to be vaccinated, the the highest group that answered no was Republican men at 49%, uh, whereas just general white Americans and black Americans were both like 25 and and 28%. So that's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of polling, but it's all to say that we have a lot of work to do to end this plague, but it's not impossible, nor is it implausible. And just like it's understandable for people to have some concerns 
about the vaccine. And so, Philip, we invited you to join us to talk about all of this because of what you and your church just did. Your church, Central, there in the Bryan College Station community, volunteered to use your space as a vaccine center. Tell us what y'all did. So several weeks ago, whenever Texas updated their vaccination guidelines to allow for uh, teachers and childcare personnel to get the vaccines in the early stages of the vaccine release, we just simply reached out to our local health department to ask the question, do staff and volunteers in uh, roles that are facing preschool kids and students fit under this umbrella? And when we got back a confirmation that that indeed qualifies from the local health department's perspective. That next Sunday, I let our whole church know about that in our Sunday services, that if they're serving those roles, those are available. And what was interesting is following the service, one of the people connected to our church, who's the local fire chief for the College Station Fire Department, came up to me and said, hey, uh, what could it look like for us to host an on-location, community-wide vaccine drive for church staff and volunteers? He said, We have a vaccine strike team that takes some of the surplus uh, vaccine doses from our local hub and goes on location to serve different communities. So in our local school district, they did several dozen. And we thought if we could put out this information to a a couple dozen churches, maybe we might get 50 or even 100 uh, to come and do that to accelerate that process. So we decided to aim high and uh, we set up 200 slots for people to sign up. And by the end of that one-day vaccine drive, we had 217 vaccinations from uh, people representing dozens of churches around the area. And it's just been so encouraging to see the response to that and to know that uh, the more people that are able to take this step, the more people will be able to serve for the sake of the gospel and and be a blessing to our community. Philip, as as you have been walking through this, I'm sure that 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 announcement sparked, you know, sparked some questions in your church about the vaccine, you know, some of these questions coming from, you know, the standpoint of health, is this, is it safe? And what do we know about it? Some of it coming from a pro-life standpoint uh, and some of the ethical questions around these vaccines. But what what conversations did that spark? And, and how did you, you know, how did you navigate that? How have you approached answering these questions and, and, uh, and those sorts of things? Well, for me, it's helpful for your listeners to understand. I've I've been here on the ground for right at a year. When I uh, last April, we were figuring out a way. How do you have a vote on a new pastor when you can't meet together in person? So we had to do a a virtual vote where I preached to an empty sanctuary and people watched from their living rooms and voted from their phones like they're voting on American Idol or something like that. (laughs) Uh, For the people that aren't as technologically savvy, we had a drive-through voting option where they could come in and fill out a ballot and drop it off. And I just sat there after that thinking, I don't think Martin Luther did it this way back in his day. (laughs) And so part of the challenge for me has been adjusting to a new congregation and doing it during this COVID pandemic. In other words, how do you serve a congregation that you can't see? And so one of the things that I have been intentional about with our team is having the conversation that we need to normalize discussion about COVID in our congregation. One of my convictions is if the church isn't talking about COVID, if it's not talking about the vaccine, we're the only place where people aren't having that conversation. And we owe it to them to shepherd those conversations well. So getting to discussions about our vaccine drive or other things like that 
was just uh, a culmination of a multi-month process where we have discussed the pandemic frequently. It comes up in my sermons. We're talking about our practices. Uh, when the vaccine's coming out, that's fitting into the conversation. So in other words, it wasn't as if people were jarred by the fact that this has never come up and now all of a sudden we're going from zero to 60 to hosting a vaccine drive. They had gotten a sense uh, of this all along to process it from a biblical perspective. And I'll tell you, that didn't solve all those questions, Travis, but it helped to lay a good foundation for the discussions that we did have. So, you know, I think, you know, every church has had to navigate the last year in its own way. And and I think that, you know, I mean, just, just as you're seeing, I mean, we're seeing in our church that the process of reopening has been just as divisive, if, if not even more divisive than the, the process of closing down, in, in part, I think, because the, the, the closing down process, I mean, to, you know, just looking at the last year <laughs> was pretty quick. You know, it's, it's amazing to think about how quickly all of that unfolded. But this process of reopening, it's happening at different paces around the country. And so, you know, for, for pastors who, you know, who feel like all of these issues are not out on the table, yet at their congregation that that there's tension underneath the surface what what's your advice you know for starting that conversation now and and tackling some of these issues now at this point in the pandemic when it comes to coronavirus for pastors i think messaging matters so when you go back to when we reopened last summer we reopened in june for in-person gatherings and our team really wrestled with how do we set parameters how do we message this and the debate was what language do we use about mask expectations? For many churches, they just embrace the common nomenclature of masks required. Well, instead, we use the language mass expected because a requirement is something I'm obligating you to and expectation is something I'm inviting you to participate in. There's a sense of personal responsibility. Or you take whenever the Texas governor uh, withdrew the mask mandate for the state and when they opened up occupancy limits, again, the conversation became what does that change about what we're doing? And rather than embrace what uh, many restaurants and churches did in terms of using the language mass optional, we shifted from the language mass expected to mass respected, that we want to respect your decision. We, we trust that you're walking in wisdom. You're looking out for the best interests of others. But again, giving that sense of personal responsibility rather than uh, a mandate. So what I've found is if you frame things uh, where it's not an obligation, but an opportunity, not an edict, but an expectation, not a mandate, but a motivation, people get that, they resonate with it. And that's not going to solve all of your issues, but it's going to help. And along with that, whenever we made the pivot uh, to a mass respected policy after the reopening of Texas uh, earlier this spring, one of the things I said is, hey, look, I'm sure out there in this congregation, we've got the full spectrum of perspectives on this issue. Some of you were hoping we could have a mask burning party later on the day because we're done with masks. <laughs> and others of you can't imagine that we would even loosen up a little bit on this. And I, I'm fully aware that I might disappoint you, but I want you to know, here's how we arrived at that decision. Here's why. And we want to make sure that this isn't something we give a foothold uh, to bring division in our church. And our people have really responded to that. And I'm hopeful that the same 
tendencies we've seen along the way will continue to be the case when it comes to vaccine hesitancy itself. How how have you how have you been talking about the vaccine? You know, so I mean, it, it sounds like you've thought a lot about messaging around masks, and and I and I think that's I mean, you know, it's in some ways it's ground zero uh, of of some of the division around this stuff. You know, so you you talked about the vaccine drive that you did at your church. Have you been how, how have you addressed that that topic? Are you using the same kind of ex, you know expected respected kind of framing for the vaccine? How how are you approaching that? So it's different in the public settings and in the private conversations. Similar concepts, different approaches. In, in private conversations, what we're trying to do is meet people where they are. Everybody's coming at this from a different vantage point, trying to dignify their perspective, understand if there are hesitancies, make sure there's not a deficiency of information, and be able to talk through that. Uh, but more importantly, when it comes on the personal and the public level, is trying to do modeling for the behavior that we want. So we we try to encourage our staff and our key leaders to model for our people what we want to see them embrace, because often people watch what you're doing as much as they listen to it. And then in a public setting, uh, we can we've just repeatedly injected the vaccine into our conversation. And what I mean by that is. I can think of two or three examples over the last six months where I have integrated sermon illustrations that involve the vaccine into the conversation. So you're normalizing things from that standpoint. You're giving updates about the vaccine drive. You're talking about uh, the value of it. And so the cumulative effect is there's never been a wholesale push for everybody. You must go out and do this now. This is the only right thing to do as a believer, but you're trying to shape what's normal for your people. And the way you do that is by reinforcement over time, both in what you message and what you model. Very helpful. Thank you, Phil. To this issue, I think I personally have seen people on every end of the spectrum. And one of the questions I have for you as a pastor, I am sure you've had these conversations um, one-on-one with folks in your church, but um, what pastoral advice do you have for people who are navigating, you know, pretty strong disagreements about um, taking the vaccine um, between, you know, family members, close, close friend groups, and, you know, uh, within, you know, small intimate circles. um, And there's just a lot of disagreement. What, what pastoral um, counsel and wisdom would you give to those folks? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, every one of us has had conversations this whole way through about uh, various issues with coronavirus where there's very passionate disagreements. And my hope is that the lessons that people have learned at different stages, they can apply now when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. What, what I think most people may assume, and I think it's incorrect, is that vaccine hesitancy is primarily the result of a lack of information. That if we can just get the right facts, if we can prove the efficacy, if we can prove the safety, if we can prove this or that, then they'll say, oh, I didn't realize that I'm ready to go. In my estimation, the fundamental issue with vaccine hesitancy is not a lack of information, but a lack of trust. Trust is the fundamental issue. And so, in other words, the vaccine hesitancy is downstream of hesitancy about information and trust uh, more broadly. And 
it's it's reasonable for some people to have that gap in trust. I mean, when you saw Nevada reopening for casinos but not for churches, that's going to create create a trust gap. When you had people saying before the election that the virus is going to go away uh, once the election's over because it's just being used as a tool for that, uh, that's going to create a trust gap. Uh, you can think over and over again about some of the hypocrisies that people have rightly identified. And what's happening is, in many ways, the vaccine is getting caught up into that. And so when it comes to having those conversations, what I have found to be useful is to dignify people's perspectives and to try to get underneath the reasons for why there's that reluctance, because it's not a one size fits all. And then uh, to just ask yourself the question, am I, do I have a sufficient uh, position of credibility with this person where I might be able to help them on a path towards seeing things from a different perspective? You may know the right facts, you may know the person, but if there's not that relational depth there, you haven't built the bridge to carry that trust gap to carry them across that trust gap. And so finding not just the right way to talk about it, but being the right person to talk about it and with the right heart behind it makes a huge difference. You know, Philip, a lot of what you were saying there applies to a lot more than just the vaccine. And especially over this last over this last year, um, last summer in particular, I mean, as we're having this conversation, this isn't related to COVID, but as we're having this conversation, the trial for the Minneapolis police officers uh, who were involved in the uh, killing of George Floyd last summer sparked huge conversations and uh, political racial unrest and and a wide variety of perspectives and, and trust gaps. How have you seen other pastors, ministry leaders handle these types of really difficult and exhausting questions where there is trust gaps between people's perspectives on issues, even broader than just COVID, because you're exactly right that it's not just a matter of lack of scientific information or knowledge. It's a lot else that's going into this particular conversation that we're having today. But over this turbulent year, uh, how have you seen pastors navigate navigate these types of conversations well and helping people see see life from other people's perspectives, maybe is the finer point to that question. I remember having a conversation with a doctor in our congregation early in the pandemic when the vaccines were starting to show signs of promise back in the early fall, late late summer of 2020. And what he told me then is when these things come out, I'm probably going to encourage people to wait. We don't know if they're rushing this so much that they're going to get it right, if it's going to be safe. And well, fast forward over the new year, he and many of his family members came down with COVID, had a fairly significant case. And that lived experience by him really shifted his perspective. The trials he went through, the, the difficulties he had, made him rethink uh, what his advice and guidance would be to others because the lived experience uh, changed how he viewed things. And what I've seen is that helping people navigate through their lived experience is a critical factor in shepherding this conversation well. And when it comes to pastors and leaders, one of the realities that everybody has to wrestle through is, is, is it worth spending your chips, your capital on coronavirus related issues in your congregation? And I think the calculus for some has been I, I would be better off ignoring this 
or minimizing it than spending chips on that that I might have to spend elsewhere or using my credibility or authority. Uh, I might need to reserve that for other more important things. And instead, what I've seen in our people is they're hungry to understand this. There's a desire to see how do I process through something that's totally new uh, from a biblical perspective. And so part of what it looks like to shepherd the flock is to give them a framework for applying the gospel to every aspect of life. And that includes some of these questions. And the other thing I would say related to this, Jeff, is from the very beginning, I've had to recognize my limitations. I'm a minister, not a medical professional. So I've been able to tap into some of the medical experts in our church and in our community. We've leaned closely on the local health district because there's some good trusted voices here locally and and to try to leverage their wisdom to shape our practices and to also help us shape our messaging to our people. Philip, you mentioned uh, earlier in the the conversation that you um, joined your church um, at the beginning of the pandemic a year ago, um, and and what that process looked like as you uh, you know were called to be the, the pastor there. Um, you know, this has been a hard year for a lot of people, and especially, I'm sure, a hard year in ministry. What have you learned, um, kind of broadly, over the past year um, as a as a pastor? This has been a challenging year for everybody, but I've loved every second of serving as pastor because what better way to connect with your people than to go through a shared hardship together? I think when we look back on this season for all of its difficulties. For those of us that walked well with the Lord, we're going to see tremendous growth in the midst of this hardship. And so the the lessons have been really significant. And one of the lessons that stood out to me most really hit me not long ago. I was, now that vaccines are uh, much more prevalent in our community, especially amongst our older generation, I was invited to a church member's 60th birthday party. And you had four generations of people there from great grandparents in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, all the way down to newborns and uh, all of those that were there who were older or in high-risk categories had already been vaccinated and it was the first setting i had been in where i looked around the room and thought wow we've got a sense of normalcy this almost feels like the way things used to be because there was that sense of comfort because of the safety that the vaccine created and what dawned on me in that moment is these types of community experiences are what we want to see people, not just around us in our city, but also within our church experience again, because the Christian life is not designed to be lived on its own, but to be lived not in isolation, but in connection with each other. So I think one of the primary lessons I've learned throughout this year is one of the best drivers for people to reshape their life is to give them a compelling vision of a preferred future. When I saw that party happening, I didn't just see a celebration of a life. I saw a compelling vision of a connection in community that most of those people hadn't experienced for an entire year. And when they tasted that, they desired more of it. And I think the same reality is going to be true when it comes to some of the things related to vaccine hesitancy, that when people see more and more taking the vaccine and they see more and more what we're able to do, that if we can keep in front of people a compelling vision of a preferred future, that's going to be one of the most persuasive things we can do to overcome some of the reluctance that people may have. 
what do you think the church has gotten right over the last year, and 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 what are the things that you think we need to learn from? I mean, I'm sure that I am confident that there's not a pastor in this country who looks back uh, on the last year and says mission accomplished. And you know, I think that, and I think the true, you know, the same is true for each of us in our own lives. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud of every decision that I've made, every comment that I've made over the last year. I mean, I think in in so many ways this last year has exposed i'll just speak for myself you know my own selfishness my own uh short-temperedness with uh, people i disagree with and um you know has really challenged me to think about how i um approach people who you know who are you know where we have differences of opinion that affect my life because i'm having to accommodate myself to to them or, or or whatever, um, you know. So I think it it's it ha- this this last year has definitely been a, a time of trial. But what do you what do you think the church has gotten right, and what has this last year exposed that we need to grow from? One of my convictions in the Christian life is that you can tell more about somebody's walk with the Lord by their reactions than their actions. In other words, the things that they have to react to in real time where you can't map it out ahead of time. And instead you're just going on gospel instinct in those moments. And what COVID has done for all of us has forced us into situations that have tested our gospel instincts, have exposed more of who we are and the struggles we have because we've never been through this before. And I think that's a gift from the Lord that we are uh, put in the situation where we're forced to confront uh, the good and the bad of what has happened. When I look at uh, the good and the bad in the church, part of what I see is uh, both sides of the coin when it comes to our digital dependence during this stage. So imagine if COVID hit not here in 2021, but in 2001, when there was no live streaming, when there was no YouTube, when there was no Zoom, when there was no option available like that what would church have even looked like in that setting? How would you have created some of these alternatives? It would have been a huge challenge uh, that would have only exacerbated some of the complications we've experienced. At the same time, though, I've I've been in circumstances I can remember. In one case, I preached on a Sunday and then went to the Texas A&M basketball game later that day. And I came upon a person that goes to our church who was there at the game we said, Pastor, it's so good to see you. I'm sorry I haven't met you in person. We're just not feeling comfortable being back together in person at church. And I'm like, but we're here with thousands of people at a game <laughs> in an enclosed environment. Uh, there seems to be a disconnect here. And what's happened is the danger to, of that digital dependence where you can rationalize sitting on the couch, drinking coffee, sitting next to your dog as a suitable substitute for what God has designed the local church to be. What encouraged me about our Easter experience at our church recently is I could sense a hunger from people to be back together in community and connection and worship. And there's a sense in which in Texas, we're living in the future right now with the mask mandate gone, with occupancy restrictions done, we're pioneering what a new normal looks like. And to me, that's a gift that we get the opportunity to be on the front lines for that. And nobody's going to get it right. I've got a pastor friend that says when uh, people criticize him in his church about how they're handling things, he tells them, hey, next time there's a global pandemic that we've got to go through, 
I'll be happy to let you lead us through that. Uh, but right now we're doing the best we can in this moment. So bear with us. And I think that's, that's really what it all comes down to is having that sense of humility to recognize that we're in a unique situation. We need to extend a measure of grace to one another. And there's a sense in which the word unprecedented is overused, but this is an unprecedented pandemic and the vaccine creates an unprecedented progress for us that has unexpectedly produced an unprecedented problem. And that problem is we've never had a vaccine come online so quickly. So many unanswered questions related to it. So why would we be surprised that there's reluctance? Why would we be surprised that there's division? These things shouldn't surprise us in a fallen world. And that those things, while rightly seen as hardships, they're also seen as opportunities to force us into dependence on God, which is exactly where he wants us to be. Well, Philip, it's great to be together with you again uh, as, uh, as we talk. <laughs> Virtually, that's true. That's true. We're all still here in the Brady Bunch squares. Um, but it's 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 good to talk with you about about uh, about these things and uh, really appreciate the, the pastoral advice and wisdom because, uh, you know, like we said at the start, we've had lots of conversations about uh, the science of vaccines with Dr. Collins, about the ethics of of, uh, vaccines with Dr. Moore, uh, but now we're in that in that moment of just conversations uh, about the vaccines in our everyday life, and so we appreciate you uh, coming on and and talking through these issues with us and, and giving your perspective and, and wisdom. And Jeff, if I can just sort of add, you know, add one thing. I think Philip, the you know the the challenge about your comments about really meeting people where they are and and recognizing that what we're what we're facing is not a deficit of information but a deficit of trust i think is really insightful and and is something that you know we we all need to be uh, thinking about you know as you pointed out in in really every theater of our lives and relationships you know how can we rebuild uh, that trust that has been eroded um, over the last year so yeah my th- thank you for being with us i i think um I'm taking away a lot of what you, uh, a lot of what you shared is very helpful. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with y'all. And I will say the ERLC resources on COVID throughout the last year have been fantastic. Been a huge help to me as a pastor. There's a number of them I've shared with our church. And when, when we're talking through some of the messaging and things like that, uh, the Francis Collins conversation, some of Dr. Moore's material have just been invaluable to help us through that conversation. So as a pastor, I want to say on behalf of many of the pastors that uh, benefit from y'all's work that you're making a big difference in local settings like ours. Well, Philip, thanks and gig 'em. <laughs> gig 'em. I, I, I can't sign on for that, but I but I will say thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show and found it helpful, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member or maybe a a fellow church member in your congregation or community who you've been having these kinds of conversations with. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, consider leaving us a rating and a review as this really will help others find our show. Resources from today's episode, which we mentioned throughout the conversation, are available in the show notes uh, as well and always at erlc.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.